Thanks, Jamie. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. The title of our message is a heavy one. It is Judgment and Lament. As Jesus has, we've looked at the seven woes that he has pronounced on the scribes and Pharisees, beginning in verse 13. Actually, before that, in the first 12 verses, he warns the disciples not to be like them and us, not to be like the Pharisees and scribes and their hypocrisy. And then in verses 13 to 33, he pronounces seven woes upon the Pharisees for their false religious hypocrisy. And I want to just go ahead and read this morning. We're going to back up a little bit. Uh, we're going to look at verses 34 to 39 and, and close out the chapter. Um, but I want to back up to verse 32. Actually, verse 29, I'll begin reading on the seventh woe, the very last woe. You might remember verse thir- in verse 13 was the first of the seven, where he calls the Pharisees and scribes out as hypocrites. Um, They shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. They neither go in themselves nor permit others to go in. This is the first and greatest sin that religious leaders would prevent people from coming to God. And the seventh woe picks up in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord God of heaven is compassionate and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What should be the takeaway from any sermon? You go through all this effort to get yourself here this morning. And you who have children, we lived that life for a lot of years. That's a lot of work. (laughs) And so you come and you, you make the effort and you get here. And what should be the takeaway? You should know God better. Preachers should reveal to you the character of who God is. And our God is a compassionate, loving, 
And perhaps today, more than other times, to emphasize how patient he is with you and with me. He's a patient father, loving father, heavenly father. And as you probably got from what I just read, he is an entirely righteous and holy God who cannot wink at sin, but because of his righteousness, because of who he is, the character of who God is, he must act judicially in perfect, holy righteousness. The illustration would just be real simple. You go to the courthouse. You go to the courthouse, and there's an elected official there serving as judge, and there's a case brought before the judge. Let's just say a very clear-cut case. Somebody is guilty of a horrible crime. It is the judge's responsibility to do what? Make a right judgment. Right? And you all would hold him accountable for that. And if he just decided on a whim one day, hey, you know, today's your lucky day. You're not guilty. You, you can go home. Right? He wouldn't last as a judge very long in a free country, would he? Um, you get that. You understand. That, that's a good illustration of how God is, by his character, righteous and holy and always makes a right and holy judgment on all things. So when we think of sin, God can't but judge sin. God has to judge sin because of his perfect, righteous, holy character. So then, that magnifies the love of God. Because what did he do for guilty sinners who, who rightfully and righteously deserve his holy wrath? He sent his son to come and die for you and me. And by that, God remains just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is love indescribable. That's just all background to the introduction. Who do we worship? We worship this God, the God who reveals himself in Scripture and in his Son, who is perfectly holy, perfectly just, but also a patient and loving God. God promises a deliverer to his people Israel from the very beginning. You remember the first sin, Genesis chapter 3, right? In the first pages of your very thick Bible, Adam and Eve rebel against God. There was one thing they weren't supposed to do, and Eve found three reasons why she could justify her disobedience, and she did it, and her husband joined in with her to eat the forbidden fruit. God pronounces a judgment upon them, and in his great grace and mercy, they, he didn't strike them dead immediately. He actually let them live full lives, although now it would be in a sinful, fallen world, and their bodies would decay, and they would certainly die. And he promised, the Lord, after he pronounces the curse upon the serpent, he also prophesied the ultimate demise of Satan at the hand of the Messiah. He said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To bruise the head speaks of the death blow. Of course, to bruise the heel would be Jesus dying on the cross. 
but death would not hold him. He would conquer the grave and ultimately conquer Satan as well. But this was promised clear back in the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 3. He promised Abraham that a Messiah would come through his line. In Genesis 12, he said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul points out very clearly in Galatians chapter 3 that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He says in Galatians 3, 8 and 9, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That was a precursor to the Messiah coming, who would bless all peoples in the whole world, not just the Jews, but Gentiles as well. He would provide salvation for everyone who believes. And in the great messianic prophecy, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 11 says this, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He would not only take their sins upon himself, but he would count, God would count his righteousness to those who believe in him. Romans 5.19 says, For by the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. You will stand before a God, a holy God as righteous, not because of your own works, but because of the righteousness of Christ that is counted to you through faith. If you're taking notes, you could read Romans 4 when you go home uh, this afternoon. The Messiah came. He came to his people, the nation of Israel. This is the culmination. When Jesus comes, this is the culmination of world history. This is, the, this is what everything has been working towards since the creation in Genesis 1.1. The Messiah has come. And he came to his own people, the nation of Israel, and offered them his kingdom and his kingdom blessings and the hope of salvation, but they rejected him in stubborn unbelief. They not only did not believe in him, but they despised him, and they murdered him, and they persecuted his followers. Representing the people in their rejection of Christ were the scribes and the Pharisees. Instead of humbly seeking the righteousness that only Christ can give, they were self-righteous, legalists, hypocritical pretenders at righteousness, and haters of God. They considered themselves holy, but they were inwardly corrupt. They presented themselves as righteous, but were plotting the murder of Jesus. The nation of Israel rejected her Messiah as represented by these religious leaders. By doing this, Jesus said in verse 32, they were filling up the measure of the guilt of their fathers. If you look there, verse 32, in that seventh woe. And so to fill up is referring to sin, wrath, and judgment. It is when judgment upon the unrepentant has reached its full limit. You say, wait, 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 you just said God is patient. Yes, he's very patient. He was patient through the whole history of the Old Testament. 
to a people that continually rejected him and rejected his prophets and rejected his message. And so he sent the Son in his patience. It went on for hundreds and thousands of years even. But now they have filled up the iniquity of their sins. We read about the cup of God's wrath in Isaiah 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. We read about this cup of wrath also in Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In Revelation 16, in the seventh bold judgment in the last days, God will give Babylon. Um, it says, God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. The scribes and Pharisees were now on the brink of filling up the limit of their sins. They had, they had, Sin to the point where God's patience had come to its end. This was it. He had done all that he could do. He sent his son. He sent the son to offer them the kingdom, and they reject him and his salvation. We need to note here, before we move on any further, that the theological truth that the one who continually rejects God, God at some point rejects that person. You say, wait a minute, it's never too late to repent and believe the gospel, right? It's always, there's always a chance. As long as you draw breath on this earth, you could repent and believe in Jesus. As we experience it, men can always be called to repent and believe through the preaching of the gospel. Amen. But the Bible also teaches that a man or woman can repeatedly hear the gospel. And if they continually reject it, if they continually choose to remain in their sin, they risk God giving them over to the hardness of their heart. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 1, we'll see a very important scripture here. The Apostle Paul warns sinners that the wrath of God is coming upon all sin, all ungodliness, and that those who do not repent, God gives them over. Verse 28 of Romans 1, and since, actually, verse 18 speaks of the wrath of God. Verse 18 of Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 20, skip down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God, I'm sorry, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
It's not a knowledge problem. It's a faith problem. They won't put their faith in God and repent of their sin. They know God's righteous decrees. Every, every person knows, has, has, a, has a consciousness of the existence of God and has a consciousness of what God expects on a moral level. And so the, the hardening of the heart is seen in verse 28 when it says, God gave them up to a debased mind. You don't, you don't see fit to acknowledge God. You don't see fit to, you can turn back to Matthew 23, you don't see, see fit to repent of your sins and turn and embrace Christ in humility and, ask, and seek Him for the forgiveness of your sins. God will give a person up to their sins. You remember Pharaoh in Exodus 9 hardened his heart against the Lord. And in the very next chapter, it says, the Lord confirmed that hardening. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Chapter 10, verse 1. At some point, Pharaoh was given over to his sin, given over to the hardness of his heart. How do we, and here's some application right away, how do we harden our hearts? Simple, don't act on conviction. Don't act on conviction and you will harden your heart. Hardening your heart is hearing the Word of God, hearing the truth somehow, preached, spoken to you, read from the Word, and you are convicted this, is, this has application to my life. I need to do these things. I need to, to add something to my life. I need to get something out of my life. I need to honor the Lord. I need to repent of my sin. And you just let it go. In a little, little while down the line, you hear the same thing again. The conviction isn't quite so severe. A little more time goes on. You've still neglected that truth. You've avoided it now a few more times. And you hear that again. You hear that, you hear that word of God again that applies directly to you, has application directly to you, and you decide, I'm just not going to do it. And it has very little effect in your life. That's all you have to do to harden your heart, is just ignore conviction of sin. Sin should cause alarm to the believer and to the non-believer when it is revealed that you are not in a right relationship to the true and living God. It is, it is good when sin afflicts the soul. It is good when you're sick about your sin. It's good to be depressed if it's about your sin. Why? Because you should turn now. Run to Christ. There, there could be nothing more serious than turning from your sin and running to Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross. Seek the mercy of God. And this is the promise Jesus said, that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6.37 Don't harden your heart. The longer you remain in unrepentant sin, you're actually filling up the measure of your sins for a coming judgment. And this is what Jesus condemns the Pharisees for. God had sent his messengers for hundreds of years. And now he finally sent the son, and they are plotting his murder. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus asks a rhetorical question. 
If you admit that your fathers are guilty of killing the prophets and worthy of hell, then how will you escape when you are plotting the destruction of the greatest prophet, plotting to kill the Lord's Messiah himself? You are filling up the full measure of your sins just like your father, and they will not escape. They will be cast headlong into hell if they do not repent. Now, the good news is that this, this is a passage full of bad news, so bear with me here. But the good news is some of the Pharisees will. They will repent after, and I think, I think that happens. The Bible doesn't, doesn't reveal to us, but I think that happens after the, at the cross, literally at the cross, and then at, after the resurrection. Uh, we know at least Nicodemus uh, was with Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Nicodemus being a Pharisee. So, so there, there were some Pharisees came to faith in Christ. But this is the sternest of warnings. Let's see the introduction. Now we'll see the comprehensive condemnation, verses 34 and 36. Therefore, verse 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Therefore, in verse 34, refers back to what was previously said. Because of the Jewish leaders' wicked abuse and murder of God's messengers, more messengers will therefore be sent. But Israel's religious leaders will treat them the same way as they... And they, they did. We know from Scripture they treated John the Baptist that way. John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded, and now Jesus is soon to be arrested, abused, and crucified. This will fill up the full measure of the iniquity of their sins against the prophets, and their eternal, eternal judgment will follow. He says, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Verse 34, both Matthew and in Luke's account anticipate Jesus sending his disciples into the world to preach the gospel. Christ's apostles and prophets would be used by God to not only preach the gospel, but also to record God's written word. The inspired word of God recorded in the New Testament would bring the full message of God's mercy and grace of salvation, so everyone will know. And some of these, he says in verse 34, you will crucify. Of course, Jesus was crucified, but many of his followers were crucified as well. Jesus warns us and his disciples, of, especially his disciples of this in Matthew 10, when he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus is warning them that he is being criticized. He is being called out as being in league with Satan. He said, all the more you, my followers. So he warned them in Matthew 10 that what happens to him will happen to them as well. You know that the Jews were not allowed to execute anybody because of the Roman occupation, but they could hand people over to the Romans for execution, and that's exactly what they'll do with Jesus. Church history tells us that the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down. He was martyred um, outside the city of Rome. Interestingly, um, that tradition records that Peter requested 
to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And as we get to know Peter in the Gospels, that sounds like something Peter would indeed say. Stephen in Acts 7 was put to death by the Jews by being stoned. Herod put the apostle James to death with the sword in Acts 12. History records that all of the apostles except John were martyred, put to death, and John, of course, was exiled. Um, I have stood in the place where Thomas was said to be killed in India. Um, there are some interesting, there's an interesting chapel built there and, and some relics and some really interesting statues that the Roman Catholics in India like to build. Uh, it wasn't a fun experience, but nevertheless, I was there, and, and it's on a hill, and as you look over the, the city, you can just imagine the apostle there praying for the, for the salvation of souls and going to where the word of God has never been heard before. Verse 34, and some of you will f- be flogged. Some of you will flog in your synagogue and persecute from town to town. Um, the apostle Paul was persecuted in this manner. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Not once, not twice, five times the Apostle Paul was flogged. How many times, don't answer this, how many times would you be flogged out on a mission for Christ and decide, you know, maybe this isn't the will of God that I came here. I know I'd be praying that. Lord, is this really your will? After maybe the second or third time for sure, Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Not beheaded. This is a way to, to, to punish you. Beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. When the circumstances broke down and the ship was sinking, the first time we might be thinking, Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm interpreting this as not your will. I'm going to go back home and, and preach the gospel in my hometown. Not Paul. Paul continued on. God's chosen servants were filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the message of salvation to the lost and to pen Holy Scripture in order that all people would have access to the full message of His grace and salvation And through these same men, who through miracle signs and wonders confirmed the message of the gospel, and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote down Scripture. God ordained that their message would also serve as an instrument of judgment for those who rejected them. The Scriptures testify that if you reject Christ, there is no other way to heaven. Verse 35 begins with, so that on you may come, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. So that is, in the Greek, is uh, grammar, uh, points to purpose. It is God's divine purpose. Uh, his divine purpose will be worked out in and through this human rejection of God's messengers. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. According to God's ordained purpose, The Jewish leadership who reject Jesus the Messiah will bear the guilt of that sin. It's comprehensive. Not only the sin of rejecting Jesus, but as the leaders of the nation, they will bear the comprehensive guilt of the sin of the nation. Remember, Jesus standing in his sandals in Jerusalem is the culmination of all Old Testament history. Everything to the left of your Bible before Matthew. 
culminates here. The whole purpose of it is to point to the Messiah here. So this rejection of the, of the Messiah is final in a long line of rejecting, in a long line of persecuting. This is it. The culmination is here. Now rejecting the Son brings the, the whole, fills up the whole measure of their guilt that God's wrath will be poured out. As they reject Christ, they act as the sons of their fathers, meaning they do the same thing and they will fill up the full measure of their sins. And so they are without excuse. No other generation had the full revelation of both the completed Old Testament Scripture. So the scribes and Pharisees Jesus is talking to, they have the full, completed Genesis to Malachi and the sinless Son of God, the the Messiah finally comes standing in their midst. No other generation prior to them had a fuller light to shine the truth upon them. When he says, from the blood of righteous Abel, that's the children of Adam and Eve, to the blood of Zechariah, Zechariah the prophet, towards the end of the Old Testament period, he, it's, a way, it's a way of saying from beginning to end. From the beginning to the end. The unrighteous cannot tolerate the presence of righteousness. Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain, and Cain killed him for it. Because righteousness itself is a type of judgment, just by its very presence. It's a type of judgment upon sin. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, that's a, this is a debated passage, and I'll just real quickly go over it with you. Uh, in, Second, in Second Chronicles chapter 24, Zechariah, the son of Jehodia, was stoned to death by order of the king Joash. His murder in the court of the house of the Lord occurred about 800 B.C. The name Zechariah occurs over 20 times in the Old Testament, so it was a common name. The prophet Zechariah, whose father was Berechiah in Zechariah 1.1, was among the last of the prophets of Israel. And although the Old Testament does not report that he was murdered between the temple and the altar, it seems certain that he was the Zechariah to whom Jesus referred. So some people have made much of the fact that 800 years, uh, in 800 BC rather, Zechariah, son of Jehodia, was killed in the same manner. It's very likely, and I would say is, is truth, that Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, was actually killed um, in the same manner. They just happened to be killed in the same manner. And for our second application, the biblical truth to embrace here is that God is glorified in judgment as well as in the saving grace of salvation. God is glorified when people hear the gospel and repent and come into the family of God. But God is also glorified when He righteously judges those who reject Him. In Revelation 18.8, there is a song of praise sung at the fall of Babylon. Revelation 18.8, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. 
God's judgment upon Babylon is the pouring out of his wrath upon the non-believing world. Babylon, the ancient city, is used here to describe the kingdom of the Antichrist. So I don't believe it's just referring to the, the location Babylon, but to the whole kingdom of the Antichrist. Regarding those who have followed the Antichrist, Revelation 14.10 says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The cup of God's wrath will be filled to its fullness. Those who participate in Antichrist's kingdom will experience the full force of God's wrath in holy and righteous judgment. After God's holy and righteous wrath are poured out upon unbelieving Babylon, the kingdom of the Antichrist, the saints will sing this song. And this is, this is where I'm going with this, if you want to jot down. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. After this, I heard what seemed, John records, I, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. God is praised for His grace as well as for His judgments. God will be glorified. He is glorified in the grace of salvation when people believe and come into the kingdom, and He will be glorified in judgment upon those who reject His Son. God is not only a God of love and mercy and grace and holiness and righteousness and great patience, He is also a God of perfect righteousness, wrath, and judgment. What is our action point here? When you share the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody, God is glorified when you, in the presence and fullness of His Holy Spirit, with a heart of compassion, tell an unbelieving sinner about the way of salvation that has been revealed to you. Say, let me just show you what God did for me in Jesus Christ. And you lead them to the saving knowledge of Christ. God is glorified. And when you, when you preach that same message or share that same message with someone, with the same compassionate heart, with the truth of God's word, and they reject it, God is also glorified. And if they don't repent, He will be glorified even in their judgment. You and I are called to faithfulness. We are called to be faithful to our Lord. And in faithfulness, we tell others the way to the door of heaven, the way through the narrow gate. We, we call them off of the broad road, off of the gate that leads to destruction. We call them to, to turn from their sins and follow Christ, give their whole life to Him. Confess their sins and turn from their sins and embrace Christ by faith. And whether they respond or don't respond, God is glorified and will be glorified now and in the end. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Verse 36. 
the comprehensive condemnation. This generation, the accumulated guilt and judgment of Israel's historic rebellion against their God and their final rejection of his son, the Messiah, they will receive the punishment for the sins of the nation and they will experience total destruction and desolation. Though that generation that was listening, this is a, this is a controversial passage, this very short sentence, but I believe very clearly it refers to the people listening at that time. In less than 40 years, the Roman legions will march on Jerusalem and utterly destroy the city and its inhabitants. In 66 AD, the Jewish revolt began against Rome. It was precipitated by pagan offerings of uh, birds to Roman gods done right outside the doors of a synagogue in Caesarea. Well, as you can imagine, the local Jews were pretty upset by that. And at about the same time in 66 AD, the Roman governor of Judea at the time raided the temple treasury and removed 17 talents of gold or silver. 17 talents is a lot of money. And he just blatantly went in and, and confiscated it. Well, this got the Jews really upset, as you can imagine. And so led by a sect called the Zealots, uh, throughout Israel, it wasn't just localized in, 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 in one or two places or just in Jerusalem, as many people think. It was through the whole country. Um, the Jews were stirred up to anger against the Romans. The zealots in Jerusalem defeated the Roman uh, governor's troops and took over the Antonio for- Fortress. Um, in a really uh, horrible story, the Commander, the centurion in command at the Antonia Fortress, um, surrendered, asked for safe passage out of the city. They guaranteed him safe passage. When they came out, they slaughtered the whole bunch of them. So they were all murdered. Unrest spread throughout Israel, and another group called the Sakari captured the Roman garrison at Masada. Um, they surrounded the Roman soldiers there at Masada, slaughtered all the Roman soldiers. The Emperor Nero, of course, couldn't let this go, so he ordered the governor of Syria, uh, Cestius Gallus, to put down the rebellion. Gallus marched to Jerusalem, leading the 12th legion into battle against the well-fortified Jews in Jerusalem. The 30,000-man Roman contingent was defeated, and as they tried to fall back to the coast, the, the Jews caught them, Uh, in a valley and slaughtered 6,000 of them in one day. Um, Nero dispatched General Vespasian to Israel, who didn't arrive until A.D. 67 at the head of a 60,000-man army. Vespasian uh, spent the next year methodically moving through the northern Galilee region one village at a time. He didn't want to leave anyone behind him Uh, before he got to Jerusalem. And so he took his strategic time to defeat every city along the way. It is estimated that just from his northern campaign in AD 68, that when he crushed the Jews, he captured or sold into slavery 100,000 Jews. In the same year, Vespasian began his Judean campaign in much the same manner, capturing one city at a time, 
he left the city of Jerusalem for last. So before they besieged Jerusalem, which the, the Syrian uh, Roman general had done, they decided they would take care of the rest of the countryside first. So this took two years. Um, in the middle of that year, Vespasian was called to Rome and was crowned emperor. Uh, Nero uh, lost the support of the Praetorian Guard and committed suicide. Um, and so there was, there, there was a, a call for Vespasian to return to Rome so that he could uh, become the new emperor. He put his son Titus in charge of the campaign. Titus actually uh, began in Egypt and marched is essentially straight to Jerusalem uh, in, in A.D. 70. After a seven-month siege of the well-fortified city, the walls of Jerusalem were breached. Roman troops slaughtered the city population, looted, pillaged, and set fire to the city. Josephus records that over one million Jews were put to death just in the city of Jerusalem, 1.1 million. Most of them were non-combatants. The temple was destroyed, and Jesus' words were fulfilled. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. One historian writes that it's thought that even the, even the stones that were, that were uh, rolled off of the Temple Mount were because the fire melted gold and the gold got between the stones and they were scavenging the gold. That could be true. Uh, but for whatever reason it happened, Jesus' words were fulfilled precisely. The whole city was entirely leveled. One thing that evangelical uh, scholars and pastors kind of overlook, is that that Temple Mount, before the Dome of the Rock was there, the Muslim holy site that's there now, it was actually a Roman forum. Uh, at not, not immediately after uh, this, but in, in years to come, they, they would be a, a seat of Roman government for a short while. The people living in Jerusalem, at the time of Jesus' rejection and crucifixion, they would experience the full measure of the guilt of their father's sins. This is the culmination of the guilt of the sins of Israel by rejecting their Messiah. So when we see in history the, the desolation of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans, it is the, the final fulfillment of the cup of God's wrath at this point in history. And so it is a comprehensive condemnation going all the way back to the death of righteous Abel to the rejection of the Messiah. And lastly, we'll see the crying over Jerusalem. Jesus cries out here in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city was special for Jesus and for every Jew. It was God's special place for his people to come and meet with him. So it is doubly tragic that this city, chosen by God, should bring down upon itself the guilt of rejecting God's messenger through the centuries, culminating in the rejection of God's own Son. So this is Jesus' lament for the city, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. We read the words wrongly if we see just frustration and anger, right? You can get kind of frustrated reading this. You can say, why, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they receive their Messiah? But that's not, that's not Jesus' attitude by any means. Uh, 
We actually would miss the point entirely if we read that into Jesus' words. Jesus is deeply grieved. He is profoundly moved that the inhabitants of God's holy city should reject his prophets, the men who bore the divine message to God's children. They not only rejected them, but they put them to death. Now, infinitely worse, they're rejecting the ultimate messenger, the Son. Jesus speaks first of what Jerusalem has done in the past, the city that kills the prophets. Instead of a reputation as a holy city, it is a reputation as murderers. Instead of taking heed to God's word delivered by his messengers, the people had a reputation for stoning those who were sent by Yahweh. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together? There is great compassion here in the picture of a of a mother hen and her little chicks. Great concern for her children to gather them. The helpless baby chickens. That's what Jesus, Jesus sees the people as people who need a shepherd, who need protection. The care of a mother to be found safe under her protecting wings. Jesus has deep affections for the inhabitants of the holy city. He doesn't just write them off. Well, You reject me, there you go. It's all going to come falling on your head. Not at all. He wanted them to commit themselves to his care. Under his wings they would have found safety, but they were not willing. And Verse 37, and you are not willing. They refused and and chose to go their own way. When matters got serious, they were unwilling to seek the shelter that Jesus offered. They preferred to send him to the cross. Jesus expresses the sorrow of his heart as a parent who longs for a beloved child who has gone wayward to return. For their history, since Moses led them out of Egypt in 1446 BC, Israel has consistently gone their own way. Now Jesus reveals the heart of God for his people. He possesses a divine paternal love that longs for their return. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is the common sin among all people. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the expression of God's great love. And so, a final application would be to know the character of God. Despite the comprehensive condemnation and the soon coming judgment, the sovereign Lord Jesus takes no delight in the death of anybody, especially his countrymen, the Jews. He's not vindictive towards his enemies. The unchanging character of God is Jesus, he is God in the flesh. Who says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone? Ezekiel 18.32. In Ezekiel 33.11, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God's desire, even as judgment is looming, even as the, the Roman legions are, in a sense, kind of figuratively coming over the horizon, It's God's desire that they would turn back and live. 
Turn from your ways. Repentance. The gospel is a gospel of faith in Christ, and that faith is a faith of repentance. To turn is what repentance means. It means to turn from your sin and embrace Christ. Come to God. Turn away from your sin. Remember, conviction is not enough. You say, oh, I was really convicted. Great, now tell me what happened. Because conviction only just says you're, you're aware of your guilt. Now you must act on that conviction. Now you must put your faith in Christ. You must turn to Him. Turn away from your sin. The character of God is revealed in Scripture. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How many generations, how many hundreds of years was God patient with Israel? When they, when they engaged in blatant idolatry in Jerusalem, profaning the temple itself, and he did not wipe them out. He disciplined them. Oh, they, they experienced great hardship, but he preserved them. And when they repented and turned to him, he blessed them and drove their enemies away. Over and over and over for hundreds of years until Christ finally comes. And so, what is our attitude towards unbelievers? Does my heart cry for their salvation? Like Jesus crying over Jerusalem, do I lament their eternal demise? Do I pray for their salvation? Will I use the opportunities God has given me to reach them for Christ? When we do that, friends, we express the heart of God to cry out and pray for those who don't yet know the Lord. Well, let's wrap it up. Verse 38, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He says, um, verse 38, no, I just read verse 36, sorry. Verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. Left um, in the Greek means to abandon. God will abandon Israel to her enemies. Your house, Jesus could have said the temple, he could have said Jerusalem, he could have said the nation, all mean the same thing. House is a picture of the family home, the dwelling place of God with his family in the holy city, Jerusalem. Desolate, Jesus points to the city's final destruction. As I've already mentioned, the Romans will come in, uh, in AD 70 and will reduce it to a desolation. For God has forsaken the people of Jerusalem. The glory has departed. He will no longer dwell with the people who have persistently refused him. And it is a picture of everyone who refuses the gospel, refuses Christ. Verse 39, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Verse 39, um, if you look down at verse 24, verse 1, the first four words say, Jesus left the temple. Uh, when he says, you will not see me again, that's it. He's, he's gone. He's leaving. Leaving the temple area, he won't be back. Um, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That day is the second coming. That's the parousia. 
At his second coming, Jesus will return victoriously and exalted in glory. He will then receive greetings and worship from the religious leaders of Israel. When Christ returns in power and glory, all people will acknowledge him. But for now, he is leaving the temple. And he says in verse 39, you will not see me again. This is my last words to you, scribes and Pharisees. And so we close with one last application. Jesus' cry of lament, one author said, tinges all the preceding woes with compassion. This crying over Jerusalem is a cry of compassion. God's love for his people. Jesus' words are to the people. The city of Jerusalem represents God's people. The woes of chapter 23 are not merely personal frustrations. Rather, they are divine judgments of God's soon coming wrath upon the people. But these pronouncements of judgment never call into question the reality of God's divine love for his people, Israel. Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth. You are a God of righteousness. You are a God who does not tolerate sin and has provided the remedy for sin. Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are patient and compassionate towards your people. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. So Father, I pray we would take heed to ourselves. How might we, Lord, apply this very heavy text to our own lives. Lord, might we, I pray, glorify your name by being compassionate to sinners, by proclaiming the good news of Christ to them faithfully, praying for them and leaving the results to you. Lord, we pray that you would save some in the Teton Valley. We pray that the word of God, the gospel of Jesus, would sound forth from this church that you, Lord, would be glorified in us. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We look forward to the return of Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have promised that you are coming back because we believe that then, and we know that you will set all things right. And we thank you, Father, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.